So hi, it's Mike Wheeler, co-host of Agility at Work with Kim Leary. Kim will be joining us uh, very, very soon for a conversation with our colleague Josh Weiss. I'll say a little bit more about that in just a moment. I want to give you a reminder that Agility at Work is sponsored by Negotiation 360. That site offers a range of resources, including links to online negotiation courses, and also to my Negotiation 360 self-assessment best practice app, uh, as well as articles that Kim and I have written together over the years. To get to our site, just type the letter N, as in negotiation, and the digits 360.expert. Make sure you use that domain name. It's N360.expert. Now, today we're going to be talking to uh, Josh Weiss. Josh has a new book out. I'm picking it up as we speak. It is the book of real-world negotiations, successful strategies from business, government, and daily life. And Josh, who has been a colleague at the program on negotiation with Kim and me for, shall we say politely, a number of years, has put together a wonderful book, and we want to hear more about it and what makes it distinctive from other books that are out there. Right now, I'm going to invite Josh and Kim into our conversation. You know, the reason that I really wanted to write this book was because back uh, when I first started working at Harvard, I had the pleasure of going to faculty dinners and other sessions where people shared their experiences in these real world negotiations. Um, negotiations that were happening out there, not necessarily theoretical, but very practical in nature and would share these stories of how people found their way through really difficult situations. And so for me, the reason to include real world is because I want people to understand that these are stories that actually happened. These are negotiations that transpired so that we're not necessarily talking about theory per se, we're talking about what transpired in real life. And the emphasis there was important to me because I, I really want people to think, huh, that's interesting. Like, I want to read about some of these real world negotiations that transpired and what happened. There was a time, and uh, this dates me, in the early years of uh, the program in negotiation. And maybe I should say for our listeners, the program in negotiation spans Harvard, MIT, Tufts, and other area schools, uh, Greater Boston schools. We would have these devising seminars where people would come in who were in the middle of some very interesting negotiation or locked in conflict or whatever, and we'd have brainstorming sessions. Uh, my hunch, Josh, is that because almost everybody on the planet is younger than I am, that that was before your time. Am I correct? Probably, although what I experienced when I was there was something similar where there were some of those, but there was also just a sharing of what people had been doing and the kinds of real world negotiations that they found themselves in that I found fascinating. You draw from a variety of different contexts, from, from business to international relations and so forth. I take it you believe that we, we ought to be aware of situations which at first blush might seem very different from our own work and our own lives, but you still see a relevance there. Is that correct? I do, yes. And in fact, when I started down the road of, of doing the book, um, I started to think about whether I should limit the cases to a certain realm. And what happened was that 
as I started to talk to some of the contributors, et cetera, what I really found was that, that there were a lot of really interesting similarities and a lot of important lessons from one realm that I thought applied to others. You know, this book is written for academics, students, trainers, things like that, but it's also very much written for the average person out there. And I really want them to understand that negotiation cuts across all of these realms and there are principles that can guide our approach and our behavior that also seem to cut across those realms. And so somebody in the business realm may not think they have much to learn from a hostage negotiation, but actually they do. Kim, when you teach adaptive leadership, I assume you're looking at lots of different contexts as well and trying to identify either common threads or interesting contrasts. Is that actually the case? Absolutely, Mike. You know, when, Josh, you speak about real-world dilemmas and the complexities of trying to drive change in everyday context, you know, many of those pick up on what we would call adaptive leadership, where people have a, a common challenge, but they really view that challenge very differently. And so the uh, solutions that seem relevant to them are also very different. And in order to move that process forward, in effect, people are negotiating with one another. They're negotiating about process. They're negotiating about their aspirations. They're negotiating about what's really gonna count as uh, progress. There's a lot of resonance between negotiation and the practice uh, of leading communities in adaptive challenges. It's interesting that, I mean, you sort of took the words out of my mouth. Uh, somebody else can do a, a word count here. But as you were describing leadership, I think you used the word negotiation four times. So we're in good company here as we think about it. Back to you, Josh. You happen to mention in passing hostage negotiations. Uh, I've been involved in lots of different kinds of negotiations, but not those. Can you give an example of a hostage negotiation that you talk about in the book and what it might teach us who uh, are never likely to be in that situation? Sure. In fact, I'll give you a, one of my favorite um, cases from the book is called Listening Them Down from a Tree. And it's actually not a hostage negotiation. It's actually a crisis negotiation because it wasn't a hostage situation. This happened in Calgary, Canada, and there was a native Canadian couple who were also, also methamphetamine addicts. They had a according to the husband, a very nice life together. But the wife eventually got to a point where she no longer felt like they could sustain this life, that they would end up dying if they kept going down this road of engaging in this drug habit. And so she decided one day that she had had enough and was going to check herself into a clinic. The husband was vehemently opposed. He disagreed with her and believed that their life was just fine and nothing would be problematic. The wife tried very hard to get her husband into the clinic, he would not go. But she went and she said, I'm sorry, I love you, but I've had enough. And so she checked herself into a clinic at the, at the edge of town. He was fuming as a result of all of this. And he decided that he needed to teach her a lesson about how she was ruining their lives and his life in particular. She had explained when she got to the clinic that there was a beautiful tree outside her window. And he decided that he was gonna go and actually hang himself from that tree. So in the morning when she woke up, she would see how he had ruined his life. So he basically got in his car and took a rope from his garage and 
headed to the clinic. When he got to this tree, he started to climb up the tree and a passerby said, hey, what are you doing? And the guy said, mind your own business. Well, that guy didn't mind his own business. He called the police and the police dispatcher called Gary, our crisis negotiator, and said, look, we need you on the edge of town immediately. We've got a situation. I'll fill you in. So Gary hurried to the scene. And when he got there, he said, look, friend, what's it going to take to get you out of the tree? And Arthur said, the only way I'm coming out of the tree is in a body bag. Gary continued to have a conversation with him. And a little while later, after he felt like he had been begun to build a little bit of rapport with Arthur, he tried again and said, look, there's got to be a way that you'll come down from this tree. And Arthur thought about it for a minute. And he said, if you can guess my native Canadian name, I will come down from the tree. Gary, of course, didn't know what that would be. So he said, well, give me 10 or 15 minutes to think about it. And he walked back to his car and called the dispatcher and said, can you please get Mary, Arthur's wife, on the phone and find out his native Canadian name? The dispatcher called back five minutes later and said his, his name is Running Buffalo. And so Gary went back to the tree and said, your name is Running Buffalo. And Arthur scurried down the tree as quickly as he could. When they got back to the ambulance that was on scene, Gary said to him, can you help me understand, if you don't mind, why, you know, what was behind the asking of your name? And he said, look, I got myself into a situation where I couldn't get out without losing. I needed a way to save face. By getting you to guess my native Canadian name, that would put us on even par. That would be a win for me and it would enable me to come down from the tree. So I think there are a couple of things from my point of view that are so powerful about this story. The first one is this whole notion of building rapport with the, the person in crisis uh, or a hostage taker, if you will. But the other was this whole notion of, of saving face. I think for the average negotiator, thinking about what are those things when something doesn't make sense, when we can't figure out what the problem or challenge is, thinking to that intangible interest realm and what's going on for that person is so critical. You've probably seen a lot of scenarios in negotiation where deals fall apart because people aren't thinking in that intangible sort of interest-based realm of there's something going on personally for this person and if I don't figure it out, I'm not gonna get there. The notion of face saving as well as this idea of intangible interests guiding what's going on and having to figure out what that is, is at the heart of it. A powerful story, Josh, of the importance of listening deeply to people and also of the challenge of doing so under conditions of extremity. Most negotiations aren't life and death like the one you just uh, described but they sure do involve issues that feel very, very important to people and where they are experiencing considerable urgencies. Being able to listen and to listen deeply and to take people at their word about what they say they need, but then to think about what do they really mean underneath and what else might, be, might work uh, to move the conversation forward seems really critical. Kim, uh, I'm curious about the face-saving aspect of Josh's story. Is, is there any kind of analog to that as when you're dealing with a troubled person? Well, I think we all care about how we are seen by others. Are we respected? Do they see us as valuable? 
when people don't feel valued and when they don't feel respected, it is very difficult for them to collaborate with you. Instead, you're in a, in a situation of conflict. The act of being able to respect a person's point of view, even if you disagree with it, even if you think it's dangerous and short-sighted, but to respect that there's a story behind it, that their needs and interests and, and strong feelings can set the stage powerfully for people being able to problem solve together. But problem solving requires dignity and respect and collaboration. And I think all of that uh, includes uh, creating pathways for people to save face and be viewed as valued. Josh, you spoke of um, this guy in the tree and in terms of his interest in saving face, which he was quite explicit about. I want you to take me on in this, but I think some of our colleagues in the negotiation field, uh, we talk about interests if you're applying for a job. You have an interest in being well compensated. You have an interest in having the resources at work to accomplish your job well. You have an interest in having some kind of shared understanding of what the metrics are and so forth. Some of our colleagues kind of look at these emotional and I would say identity considerations as interests as well. And I'm shy about that because it's one thing to talk about how my interests can be traded. I'll give you a little list for that. But when it comes to being respected, to being listened to and so forth, I don't think that's an item to be traded. I, I, I want to keep that separate from the bundle of things um, that are the substance of, of agreement. Am I being just semantic on that? Uh, where do you come down on that? First of all, to me, when you identify interest, it's not necessarily uh, always about trading them. It's, you know, there are a lot of times when, in fact, to me, there are multiple pathway, pathways to satisfy those interests. And I think that when you identify respect or dignity, as Kim said, and by the way, I, I believe if you read the book, in most of the cases, you will see a face-saving component that's involved. And to me, you know, when you identify this notion of respect or dignity, it, it doesn't cost me, I don't have to give up something usually uh, in order to respect you, in order to, to provide you with the dignity you're seeking. So I think there are certain interests to me that are sort of non-negotiable or critical interests is the way that I often describe them, that they're the kinds of things that you really have to have to be part of any kind of solution. There may be others that are not necessarily as important, uh, more tangible things. I mean, I like to bunch them into tangible interests and intangible interests. And I think when you get to the intangible realm, uh, it's less about trading and more about understanding and being able to respect the fact that somebody has that need. Like if they feel disrespected as part of the process, the only way you're gonna get that process back on track is if you bring respect to the table, bring it back. Our emotions are interest, to use the word I don't want to, in, in their own sense, I want to feel and that's an emotional state. I want to feel respected. But they also affect how we see the world, whether we're optimistic or pessimistic, uh, ecstatic or, or frustrated, whatever the case may be. And I worry that some conventional negotiation theory um, doesn't really attend to it. Kim, uh, can, you, can you save me here in terms of 
how I'm thinking about our emotional state as something which really affects the way in which we see ourselves and others, not merely as as a little box that needs to be checked off? Sure. So, so many of our colleagues, including, of course, uh, Dan Shapiro, have written about uh, emotion and negotiation. And we often use emotion as a shorthand for many different elements of experiencing, from the moods that we have to the experiences of discrete affect states, to the complex interaction um, and intersectionality, one might even say, between um, uh, what we feel and what we think. Um, we, we need our emotions every bit as much to think uh, as we have the capacity to think through our emotions. To begin to make room for the idea that when people come to you with a very different point of view or proposal or deal on the table, it's not that they're wrong, they're just experiencing the problem and the solution in very different terms. AKA, it looks like an adaptive challenge. Our emotions and being able to listen to, as our colleague Ronnie Heifetz puts it, the music beneath the words is often what helps us to get out of those uh, deadlocks and impasses. Back to your story. I'm struck by the face-saving aspect of it, and I also am in awe of uh, Gary, the officer who went to the scene, with his composure. And it would seem to me in that kind of situation, at least at the outset, you're buying time. You just try to keep the conversation uh, going. One thing to say, it's another to do. You're big on stories uh, for being instructive, and that's a powerful one. There are other ones in the in the book as well. But what's your sense, Josh, of why why we can learn practical lessons from um, stories that are are really remote from our experience? I, I think, in part, there's two two answers to that. I think the first thing is that stories, even though they're remote from your experience, are relatable. You know, if you listen to a story, you can find something within that story that that connects you to it. Usually, the other is to me that they're disarming. You know, if somebody says to you, "Let me tell you a story," there may be no more sort of powerful way of disarming somebody than than starting that because, you know, when you share it in that way, you know something's coming, but um, and there's probably a lesson in there, and that you're maybe listening to it. Um, I've actually noticed in my own negotiations when I'm stuck and I use that and start by saying, let me share a story with you about how I think this is possible. It's a way of shifting the conversation. I know one of the challenges that I know I've experienced and, and I've heard other people experience as well is, you know, when you're in a more positional or distributive negotiation, how do you shift to a more interest-based approach? And I'm, I've often found by saying, let me share this story with you um, that that is a kind of subtle way to nudge somebody in a different direction. And I find that people are much less likely to get their back up around hearing a story than they are about perhaps pointing out why somebody might be wrong or another way of thinking it or another concept that they hadn't listened to. And, and I think if you read some of the research around stories as well, you know, they're much more likely to be recalled because they have sort of that natural almost natural cadence to them that you can resonate with. And so when you're in the moment, you can remember a story 
you think will help you to perhaps shift and change the conversation? That's so interesting, Josh. And I wonder what you think about this idea. It seems to me that when you say to someone, I'd like to tell you a story, or you signal in some way that you'll be telling them a story, you're, you're kind of, there's an invitation to listen. And it's, it's so different than some, when someone says, let me give you my analysis. Often mm -hmm. you're prepared to uh, defend your own against theirs. So I'm struck by the invitational qualities of stories. I wonder if you'd agree. And, and also that when someone says they're gonna tell, tell you a story, there's also an assumption, I think, that they're gonna tell you something about themselves, about what they believe, what they value, and where they see themselves in the world. I'm just curious what you think about that. So I definitely think, uh, I agree completely on the invitation. And I think I would agree largely about the idea of, of when you tell a story, you're telling you know, the other something about yourself. I think in addition, you may also be telling the other something that you think might help move a process forward or change the dynamic or something along those lines. But, but absolutely. And I think the invitation piece is exactly right because it, as you say, when you share an analysis or something, you know, that's one way of viewing things that, that people are listening for and maybe they're in debate mode. So they're listening for the holes in it. When you share the story, it's different. It just comes across differently and people don't take it in the same way. So I absolutely agree with both of those. It really does change the dynamic between the people involved in, in the negotiation. Josh, if I can hop in here, you know, we have at the program negotiation, these uh, great negotiator awards and oh, this is the better part of 15 years ago, the UN diplomat Lakdar Brahimi came. Charming, charming guy who has parachuted into just really difficult problems that uh, may be unsolvable. Sometimes he's managed to, to build peace. He would repeatedly answer questions with this phrase, well, let me tell you a story. And that would get laughter from the audience. He did it so much. But I still remember some of those uh, those stories, Josh, and I expect you do too. I'm mindful of the clock here. Uh, what else should people know about your, uh, your book? Uh, I think they've already gotten a, a, a very good taste of uh, how grounded in real experience um, uh, the book is. And the book, again, is The Book of Real World Negotiations. Joshua Weiss is the, uh, is the author. But any other high points that we ought to hit here before we uh, thank you and wrap up? Yeah, I think really, uh, in so many ways, the book is really about how to negotiate. You know, I, I, like you and Kim, I'm sure, because you work in this world um, the way I do, you know, I'm constantly confronted with people talking about what negotiation looks like. And I feel like there are a lot of myths around it. And, and I'm, with the book, I was really hoping to show people that there's a very different way. And when you come up against a real, a really significant challenge in negotiation, um, that's when, you know, the best negotiators roll up their sleeves. And there's a how that's embedded in these cases that I think is so important for people. So I would love people to look for the how is it that these negotiators found their way through situations that frankly looked like there was no solution. And, and I think that's the big, one of the big lessons that I tried to get through.
We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Josh today. I was really intrigued with his comments about stories and how we can learn lessons from situations that might at first seem far removed from uh, our lives, professional and, and personal. What struck you, Kim? Josh is just so eloquent on the importance of stories and storytelling as a dimension of negotiation. You know, we, we tell stories all the time, but we don't always think about them and connect them up to our negotiation theory and frameworks. So that I thought was really terrific. Well, it was great to have him on board. And I want to also just add a reminder that Agility at Work is sponsored by Negotiation 360. You can find a bunch of things there, uh, links to online courses, um, information on how to get my Negotiation 360 self-assessment best practice app. And there's some articles, Kim, that uh, you and I have written together over the uh, over the years. To get to our site, uh, just type in N, as in negotiation, and the digits 360.expert. Uh, be sure to use that domain name. It's N360.expert. So thanks for listening. Looking forward to next time. Meanwhile, be well.